Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This podcast is all about developing your voice as a journalist and developing the skills to harness that voice. My guest today is a terrific example of this, and we'll get to her in a second. But before that, this. First, please subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. It is the best podcast app I know. It keeps a playlist of your favorite shows and automatically updates with new episodes so you don't have to download them all. Just download the Stitcher app and subscribe to the Telling the Story podcast. Secondly, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you like what you're hearing and want others to hear it too, a kind rating on iTunes is the best way to boost us in the rankings and the search, so I kindly encourage that. Finally, you can buy my book, The Solo Video Journalist, wherever fine books are sold. It is a how-to guide for the most in-demand job in local TV news, those who shoot and edit their own stories. It's getting picked up by college classes. It's being read around the world. Again, that is The Solo Video Journalist on sale now. My guest today has been quite busy this month. First, she attended the NABJ convention, where she walked away with several national awards for her work. Then she spoke at the Sound of Life Storytelling Workshop. She and I crossed paths there on the old speaker circuit in Asheville, North Carolina. And she just returned from the Carolina coast, where she spent a good week or so covering Hurricane Florence. We're going to talk to her about all of that and more from Care TV in the Twin Cities. Adrian Broadus, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Hey, Matt. Glad to be here. And uh, it has taken a while. We have been <laughs> working to make this happen for, I'm going to say, at least a month. But I'm so glad. How are you feeling today? I feel great. I feel great. It's um, sunny here in Minnesota. Our meteorologists are talking about snow this weekend. So I'm what? enjoying the last days of sunshine. It is 83 degrees in Atlanta. How are you talking about snow already? You're lucky. <laughs> well, I'll remind you of that when it's June and it's 95 out here. Um, first of all, congratulations on all of the, the success you've had this year, but also just again, the, the last month in your career has been exceptional between the awards of the NABJ uh, conference to speaking at Sound of Life and then getting just such a tremendous assignment and doing great work covering a very serious story uh, down in the Carolinas at Hurricane Florence. Um, Thank you. I guess we'll start with the hurricane because that is the most recent and probably uh, a thing very relevant for a lot of young journalists who might get called into an assignment like that. I know I saw a lot of journalists who I know who work in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, suddenly get pulled into covering a major national and even an international story of this hurricane. Mm -hmm. Talk about how you got the call, being all the way up in Minnesota, and your experience covering covering Hurricane Florence. So as you know, we work for a company called Tegna, and we have TV stations across the country. Our sister station is in Greensboro, North Carolina, WFMY. They knew the hurricane was coming. It started out as Hurricane Florence expected to make landfall, what were they saying, Category 4? But it was, as we learned, downgraded. So my assistant news director asked if I could travel to North Carolina to help out, uh, basically to support our sister station in any, any way they needed. We were not on the coast, although we were in uh, different p- parts of uh, North Carolina. For example, we were in Greensboro. We were in uh, Cumberland County, which is near Fayetteville, mm-hmm. uh, Randolph County. We kind of crisscrossed against the inland area. 
And even though it was not on the coast, they are still living with extreme damage because of what started out as Hurricane Florence. Um, People, I think people were skeptical when the hurricane was downgraded to category two, but being there and being in the midst of it, just the waiting and being informed uh, by our meteorologists who were working at WFMY, we saw the danger increase because she became slow and steady. That would mean prolonged days of rain. That would mean more flooding, which is a lot of what we saw when we were there. Lots of flooding and people frustrated and patient thinking they could drive or walk through floodwaters, which was not true. Now, what's interesting to me about this from a from a journalistic perspective and a storytelling perspective is that you're used to covering a certain audience. You work in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and you know your audience in the Twin Cities very well. Suddenly, you're pulled into the Carolinas and Greensboro specifically, but doing work that could conceivably run across the country on all the various techno stations. Did that at all change your approach to how you would tell a story like this, and did it change your approach to how you would look for stories when suddenly the area is not as familiar? No, the approach didn't change. At the end of the day, I love the power of storytelling and its ability to see the invisible. That's something I like to say. And there were several examples of that. We went to a shelter in a town called Hope Mills, North Carolina, which was in Cumberland County. We had 90 minutes to get information and because we had a 3 p.m. hit. Most people who work in news, you'll understand we had wall-to-wall coverage. So if we weren't on TV, we were beating our digital platforms. Mm -hmm. And I walked into the shelter, not really knowing what to expect, but I knew I wanted the people who were there, their voices to be heard. No matter where you work or what city you're in, no matter the market, that's one of the foundations of great journalism. And when I was in that shelter, I talked to at least a dozen people. They all, surprisingly, wanted to talk on camera. They told us that the food supply was low. They told us that there were folks dealing with medical issues like diabetes who weren't receiving three meals a day. Anyone who knows if someone has diabetes, they need to get their meals because that can lead to uh, critical conditions. Mm -hmm. So we talked to them. We ended up shooting two stories in one day at that shelter. Um, And you just go in with a listening ear and an open heart. And obviously it was not my market, so I don't know everything. And I don't go in pretending to know everything. And I always ask people, well, what do you want folks on the outside to know? And that can lead to other stories. You may think you know the story, but they open up and say something that you weren't expecting. And it's in the details too, right? Like you mentioned, diabetes changes that person's story so much than everyone else who is going through it because of the very real limitations that they have to deal with and the very real restrictions and and how often they need meals. Um, Were you responsible? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. I'm just thinking, I remember meeting an army veteran. I believe his name was Clarence. He was wearing sunglasses, so I couldn't see his eyes. He was sitting in a wheelchair And I sat down while I kneeled. I wanted to be eye length so we could just one for the shooting, but I wanted to be able to look him in the eye if possible. And he didn't talk about his diabetes. His wife would later say 
he was not only diabetic, but he was also had a prosthetic limb. Mm. And despite the challenges, he was grateful to just be in a safe place. He was grateful to have shelter. He's talking about being grateful to have shelter. And I couldn't help but to notice there was water leaking from the ceiling behind him. Wow. So this was another condition that some of these evacuees were dealing with. Uh, people at home often hear, okay, they made it out of their home. They're in a shelter, but we really don't know what the conditions of the shelter look like. There's such an interesting balance there as a reporter, because on the one hand, people at home are, are interested in the macro, right? They want to know the details of the storm. They want to know broad strokes and broad effects. But also, you at ground level and at eye level with so many people, you're getting individual stories. And you have to balance, you know, how much do you focus on one individual story versus the story of the shelter as a whole? And how do you work both into your reporting in a way, especially when I'm assuming in a situation like that, you're almost inundated with any number of stories you could have told from that shelter. And I think that's what you have to do in those situations. Obviously, the storm impacts people not only in North Carolina, but across the country canceled flights, gas prices, you name it. That is the macro approach. I look at it from a micro lens. How can I shine a spotlight on what's happening through the eyes of one person? Yes, we heard a lot of voices um, in our storytelling, but in that situation, I do try to narrow in and remain focused on one story. Who did what? And at the shelter, the first day, um, evacuees needed help. They were in a shelter, but they still needed help. Mm-hmm. I think one other thing that that has been coming up a lot in these kinds of national stories where reporters from all over the country parachute in is that so often members of the media are accused of insensitivity to the people that they're covering. Um, we've seen it a lot recently with mass shootings. Um and some of the coverage down in Texas and Sutherland Springs, we heard a lot about it then. Um, in Hurricane Harvey, there was a very high-profile live interview on CNN where someone who was being interviewed got very upset with the way that, rep- the wor- that the reporter was asking questions. Um, how did you approach the situation and approach the people involved in a way that showed your empathy and showed that you were here for the purpose of informing and spreading information to the public? I don't think empathy is something you can teach. You either have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. If you care, people can see that. If you don't care, people can see that too. Um, some people believe, oh, fake it until you make it. That's just something you can't fake. Mm. And I, not I believe, I know they were able to see that. Um, I told them, So, for example, we were going live at 3 p.m. It started out, I had three people lined up to talk, but everyone had a story. Everyone wanted to talk. So I raised my hand in the middle of the lobby with the leaky roof behind me. I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. There's strength in numbers. We'll start here. You have a point you want to hit. You can share that point. And we went down uh, the line. And I told them, if I can't get you all on TV live, I'll grab a quick interview with you because I want your voice to be heard. 
I also took down their names and their phone numbers and I got quotes from people. If you aren't going to make it on TV, I can tweet something out. And I think they saw that I just took that extra bit of time, even though my photographer's packing up because we've got to leave. We had to get to another area where we had heard reports a dam had broken and there mm-hmm. was flooding in that area. Turned out those reports weren't true. But just by asking the question, uh, what do you want people to know? How can I help? Goes a long way. And that's what I did in that situation. I felt helpless because they needed food. I didn't have all the food that they needed. I couldn't give them food. I hated being there. I hate that we met under those circumstances. But I spoke with uh, Regina. That's one of the women who was in the shelter. She's also a veteran. Since I've been back, she said, after we came and our stories aired, the situation at that particular shelter changed. Wow. Um, she said it's unfortunate that it took us showing up for that to happen. But if you just take time to listen to people, that goes a long way. So I don't know if that answers the question. Well, I think I think it's a, I think it might be a little more complicated than either you have empathy or you don't, because I think there is having empathy, which, you know, I, I think most people going into a situation situation like that would have. But then there's also taking that extra step, taking down everybody's phone number, raising your hand and essentially letting people know that they will have the opportunity to say what they'd like to say, because there is empathy. But then there are also the demands of the job. And I think it's very easy to let the demands in a situation like that overwhelm you and not give the kind of empathy you might be able to give in a normal situation. What I like about what you did was that you found a way to incorporate that into your job and still also found the time for those little extra things that go such a long way. So I I definitely can see where in a rush like that, it's a challenge, but when you make time for it, it can pay off the way you said. And it's not easy. And by taking that extra time, I knew when we got to the next uh, area, the photographer would need to shoot and edit a VOSAT. So what did I do? I cut the VO. I cut the SAT. I know I took extra time at our last stop. So you go ahead. You get the video that we need. I'll make up for it on the back end. But it went a long way that we returned to the shelter later in the week. In fact, we couldn't get back to the shelter to do a follow-up story because the roads were closed Oh, and dear. all that leftover sound we had ended up being the lead story at 11 PM wow. on our station that night. Like it's a fine line to walk like you're a reporter, but at the end of the day, you're human. So how do you react in those situations? How do you handle things in those situations and it's weighing the benefits of individuals at the shelter against the benefits of everybody who you might be able to reach with a report right so if you're spending your time getting food for everyone or helping everyone with their individual situations then you're not necessarily able to gather everything you need to report on the situation and let thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands more people know about it so i I think it is such a challenge, and, and I think in some ways the demands keep us focused in those environments because they usually, those usually aren't light days. You know, you're usually working really long hours. You've got your own personal health you have to worry about, and you've got a lot of producers and a lot of stations demanding 
your work and your expertise and your knowledge. So I always feel like that typically helps me in terms of knowing that what I can do best to help is usually put together a great story or get information out that people need. But absolutely when you're in the moment and you're meeting individual people, that's, that's challenging. And I think in those situations, the stories really matter because this is a dark moment in time for the families that you're talking to. They need a little hope. I, you know, in order to stay healthy um, and to not become so overwhelmed, I lean on my faith a lot. I am a Christian and I have prayer partners. So during the week I was there, I reached out to my friend who's also my prayer partner. We'd pray before I would go into work. And I was telling her about some of the people I met and some of the stories we covered. And she said, you're a little hope dealer. So I said, what? What do you mean? <laughs> she called me a hope dealer. And you know what? I'll take that title because during times like that, folks needed a little bit of hope, especially at a time when our country was so divided. It seems as if this hurricane, what started as Hurricane Florence, the water she dumped just washed away the division. I saw so much unity while I was in North Carolina. And I know on TV we show some of the raciest, the most powerful images, but that's what I wanted to show and that's what I wanted to come through through my storytelling. And I think with the water rescue, I don't know if you were able to see that story mm-hmm. that came through. Yeah. It was last Talk month. about that very quickly. So in a nutshell, there was a woman who was blind. She couldn't swim. She was depending on the guidance of her fiance. He was trying to get home. He was frustrated. He left early that morning to go help clean up a friend's yard from storm damage. This bridge was washed out. He thought they could walk across the bridge, but they didn't. It appears that maybe there was a pothole or a piece of the roadway was gone because we were in the area shooting our story Mm. already rolling. And we had been keeping our eye out on folks who may have tried to walk through that area. He fell into what seemed like a pothole. He just went straight down. And he came back up. His blind fiance went down with him. She's screaming for help, pleading, yelling. Um, people are in the area watching. I called 911. The 911 dispatcher is saying, tell those people not to go in. Do, you don't go in. And the entire time, I'm like, we can't let this woman and this man die. So I'm flagging people down, asking, do you have a boat? Do you have anything? What can we do to help them? Because it's taking forever. It seemed like forever for first responders to show up. I was on the phone with the 911 dispatcher nearly 13 minutes. Uh, But finally, three men, angels on assignment, that's what I called them. They were trying to find another way to get home. They had some rope and a lot of faith. And they went in and they pulled those two people out. Unbelievable. Yeah. But um, and then after that happened, we had 30 minutes. We had to get on air. (laughs) Of course. So talk about staying focused. So what did you do? Oh, I picked out a soundbite and started to cut it while the photographer set up the live shot. We fed that back to our station. 
the station that we were working for, and we did a live hit at five. Or no, that was four o'clock. Excuse me. We were live at four, five, and six. But for our six o'clock shot, we had to move because the water was spilling further onto the roadway, and they were closing more uh, streets and highways. Mm. Unbelievable. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Adrian Broadus, reporter and hope dealer, we have now learned, for Care TV <laughs> in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And uh, we were just talking about your work uh, out in the Carolinas covering Hurricane Florence. I want to shift from that to what we originally were going to talk about before that became such a big part of your life for the last few weeks, and that is the the experiences you've had at workshops and how you've benefited from them. Uh, you know, we were talking before we began the podcast and, and I was telling you how I look for guests for the podcast. And I was saying how I, I have really gone out of my way recently to try to find people who have a good sense of their own voice and have a well-defined understanding of who they are and, and how they present that on the air. And you're someone who I think is such a great example of that. And I had a chance to watch you speak about that at the Sound of Life workshop in Asheville um, last month. So I'd love to just dive into that with you. First of all, as a, a speaker at a workshop like that, how you teach that idea to journalists, but also being at a place like NABJ and being an attendee and, and taking home awards and being at something for many days and how that helps you develop your voice. So why don't we start with, why don't we start with NABJ and talk about that experience and what that was like and what you got out of that as a reporter and a journalist. Oh, Matt, you ask such hard questions. Well, you need to be on the receiving end of them for every now and then, right? It helps you ask them better than when you, you're, <laughs> when you you're go back right. in. I'm, I'm over here taking notes. <laughs> well, let's go back to NABJ. So that was the first week in August. I will say first, thank you. Thanks for having me. And, you know, you're somebody that I look up to. I love your work. I love learning from you. Before I was even at this recent workshop in Asheville, North Carolina, I'd seen you speak several times. And, you know, it's always good to, I like to call it a reminder, get that reminder from folks in the business about why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. Because as you go through the day-to-day -day routine, especially working alone sometimes as a MMJ, multi-skilled or multimedia journalist, MSJ, multi-skilled journalist, And a solo. brief pause, a brief pause, that's something that you did for quite a while at CARE. I'm not sure how often, if at all, you still do that, but something you have quite a bit of experience with and, as you pointed out, something that helped you quite a bit covering the hurricane because you were able to step in and do some of the editing when you needed to. Right. I did it for four years here at CARE, and up until recently, at least in the last year, I've more so been working with the photojournalists after anchoring the 11 a.m. newscast. But segueing back right. to NAPJ. Yes. It's nice to be recognized by your peers. Um, I don't take that lightly because that's a talented pool of journalists. And for them to look at your work and honor your work and say, yes, more of this, keep doing this. Um, that's nice. But at the end of the day, it's not about the awards. Um, it's more for me about the storytelling and shining a light on people 
as cliche as it may sound, who typically don't have a voice Mm -hmm. or shining a light on an issue where you help bring awareness and evoke change. And I think in our industry, some folks lack that, that skill. Um, I, I see more young journalists caught up in the number of likes that they get on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it, versus posting a picture about their story or not even posting their story at all. And if I can somehow change that narrative, I'd like to be able to do that. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. But I, I, I guess what I was wondering is, you know, I, I know you spent, how long were you at NEBJ this year? This year? A week. Yeah. So a the, week. Pretty it much was the my entirety. This was my, I've, I've been going every year to a conference since 2004, 2003. Okay. It was the Unity Conference in Washington, D.C. I was a sophomore in college. I have not missed since. That's terrific. I always say if I miss, I'll be dead. Oh, no. Say, well, okay. Say nice things at my funeral. <laughs> Definitely keep going to conferences then. And I guess my question <laughs> is, um, going to as many as you have, and and I've always said that I felt like I, I missed out early in my career because I really didn't go to any conferences until I was asked to speak at one, and suddenly I realized how inspiring they can be. But I guess my question for you is, so you've been going to these conferences year after year, and you go to specifically specifically NABJ this year, where the awards are just one very small part of a much larger week of networking and sessions and panels. What are the things that you get out of an experience like that, or maybe even just conferences in general, that help you develop your voice? Oh, okay. So for me, I love the critiques. Okay. I love the feedback. So often people will say, why are you showing people your resume reel at the job fair? You work at CARE. You have a job. You don't need a new gig. It's not about finding a new job. It's about getting feedback from people who are better than me, who can help me strengthen and sharpen my skills. Mm -hmm. For example, um, I sat down with someone who I've admired since I, before I even knew I really wanted to pursue a career in broadcast journalism, I started out in print. Uh, he went over my work. He went over my storytelling, told me like some little things I can work on. And one thing that he told me that I will carry with me on days when I feel like I'm not good enough or I'm not doing enough. He told me I'm a minority within a minority. He said our industry is lacking storytellers. I believe workshops have helped enhance my storytelling ability. No, I'm not where I want to be, but by going to those workshops and seeing other people and asking questions, that helps me. Um, yeah, that, that helps me. And it also gives me just encouragement. Someone at that, at that level to tell little old me that, okay, if he says this, I believe him. He's not going to lie. He's not going to sugarcoat it. I can keep pushing. I can keep moving forward. And while I'm moving forward, I can't forget about the young journalists. I still have to bring them along and help them because so many journalists in the NABJ network have helped me. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't be at care if it weren't for NABJ. Really? Really. It was um, like by the connections you made or by the way it helped your work. I'd say both. One, I was 
having my reel critiqued, I was offered a reporting position in Atlanta for what? Was, Come on yeah. down. What happened? I turned it down and I said, oh, oh. thanks for the opportunity, but uh, traffic reporting isn't my deal. Oh, I like okay. storytelling. No, that's fine. And, and I said, I'm horrible with direction, if we have to be <laughs> honest. But that person who is now our vice president of news, Ellen Crook, asked if she could keep in touch with me. And she said at the time, they would love to have someone like me work for our company, which was then Gannett. And a few months down the road, they reached out. Didn't work out the first time, but the relationship started there. That's terrific. And now now it's snowing in September, so now you've got to deal with that. It's all good. <laughs> I'm looking forward to next summer. <laughs> That's right. Um, Out on the lake. I, I want to – so many things off that answer that I, I want to kind of dive into deeper. The one I'm going to focus on is uh, – so you mentioned being a minority within a minority. I'm assuming that means being a storyteller within the minority community of journalists. And – the idea that storytelling is not exactly the hmm, – how should I put it? I don't know that storytelling is necessarily – or at least I think the way that it's often viewed is as in demand as so many other elements of, uh, of journalism. And, and maybe I'm – not, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right because I, I think to some degree everything can be brought back to storytelling. But there is definitely a certain finesse – and a certain narrative quality to a lot of stories that you tell and that I know that I like to tell. And I'm assuming that's what you're saying when you refer to that. And kind of transitioning to the Sound of Life workshop, that was very much all about that. And, And I love going to that workshop, and I've spoken there the last two years, because it is such a beautiful thing to be in the room with so many people who just want to tell great stories and yeah, they want to have a lot of likes on social. Yeah, they want to move up to a big market. But there is, a, I don't want to say a purity, but there is a real idealism to those rooms. And it's a privilege to get to be in a room like that and to speak to a crowd like that. Um, talk a little bit about how you try to carry that flag as a storyteller. You mentioned mentoring younger journalists. You mentioned, obviously, you spoke at the workshop. How do you look at that responsibility at your stage of your career? Well, I think it's pretty clear that I like to tell stories. If I'm given the keys, I'm going to tell a story that will touch the heart. And it wasn't until, hmm, I would say maybe, okay, can I backtrack I need, I need to go back to answer this question. Go for it. It was kind of a long-winded question, so I, I understand completely. So here on your podcast, you talk a lot about finding your voice. I feel in the last five years since I've been here at CARE, I've found my voice, I embrace it, and I'm working on making it better and stronger. Since I've been here, I've had other career opportunities that I've turned down. I've turned those opportunities down because, for the most part, I don't think I'd be able to tell the types of stories that we tell here. And I had someone, a high-profile news director, tell me, you know, this is a great story, 
but this would never show up in a newscast at my station or in our market. Okay, I respect that. But when you know and understand what you want to do, what your purpose in life is, uh, the change you want to sprinkle around the world, hold on to that. So that speaks to the type of storytelling that I like to do. I wish there were more people who cared about telling stories. Unfortunately, some folks in our career are just centered on reporting. Uh, There's a difference between reporting and storytelling. When I first started in this industry, some of us weren't even working in metered markets. Now it's almost as if we're ranked or rated instantly based on the likes that we get on social media. And unfortunately, I see some younger journalists caught up in that. They're more concerned about the number of likes and number of shares that they have on pictures, sometimes stories, but more so pictures. And I just want the focus to be back on the storytelling. I know earlier in the conversation, you talked about empathy. Um, And I think those two play hand in hand. I am happiest when I can find stories that no one else knows about and those stories that do show empathy and bring people who we wouldn't know about to the forefront. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Adrian Broadus of Care TV in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, Adrian, it's been a great conversation. I always like to use this final section as an advice section for younger journalists, and we've kind of already dove into what I'd like to uh, chat about with you in this regard, which is that, that idea of finding your voice. And I thought it was interesting. I didn't realize you started as a print reporter and then came into broadcast. Did that affect, uh, did that affect how long it took you to find your voice? Did that change your outlook when you got to broadcast? I think starting as a print reporter helped me in so many ways It taught me to pay attention to the details. It taught me to write with more color. And it taught me to really listen to people. Because for so long, I relied on my pencil and my reporter's notebook. I didn't have a big camera that was recording everything or capturing images. It was my job to create an experience for the reader based on what I had seen or heard. And I personally think it helped me uh, when it comes to storytelling for broadcast. And the reason I switched is because I had a boss say, you can't do both. You have to choose (laughs) one or the other. And that was at a time where the word convergence was thrown around a lot. And I followed my heart. I listened to the nudge in my heart and I went with broadcast because at the time I loved the immediacy of it. I remember I worked so hard on a story. There was a teenager. He was going to face his, he was going to face the man who assaulted him for years and he had never opened up about it. I was just looking through court records at the police department or at the courthouse in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I found his address, showed up at the house, knocked on the door, asked him to talk. Um, I was scared. I remember I was so scared. My uh, hands were shaking. My palms were sweaty because I didn't know 
how I was going to approach this person. It's kind of like the question you asked earlier. What do you say? What would I want someone to say if I were in this position? Would I even want a reporter knocking at my door? Well, he ended up talking to me, uh, not right away, but told me a time where I could, when I could come back. And I worked hard on this story. Somehow, the local TV station found out I was doing this story. So they had this story on Saturday night. And this was our lead story above the fold for Sunday. So when I got scooped on my own story, my heart was broken. And that was like the straw that broke the camel's back for me when I switched over to broadcast. The other thing that's that you've said a couple of times, which I think is really interesting, is you've talked about your faith. And that's not a subject we usually dive into too much on this podcast, but I think it's relevant because I sense it in the way you describe your reporting, but also even the way that you describe individuals and, and the terms that you use. Um, it certainly seems to be very prevalent in what you do, and I would imagine has been a large part of allowing you and enabling you to understand your voice as a reporter. Yeah. Um, that's the reporter in you picking up on that. So <laughs> my dad is a pastor. My mom is a retired school teacher. Uh, both uh, showed me early on, or I say they both instilled in me the gift of curiosity. Uh, when I was little, I went to more funerals than weddings with my father. I was always with him. Hmm. And I knew it was hard for him to talk to the families who had just lost someone that they loved. And I remember asking, well, what are you going to say? What do you tell them? And sometimes he would fuss and say, what do you mean? Why do you ask me this all the time? But watching him and seeing how my dad approached those families, I take that similar approach in my storytelling. Um, you, in some cases, you have to express your condolences and like as a minister, my dad, he's a hope dealer. He's trying to shine a light and trying to help them um, in dark times. Some families that he's um, had to eulogize have died because of, well, natural causes, but others have had um, extreme or violent conditions surrounding their deaths. And sometimes we see that when we tell stories. And I, I guess I try to bring a little bit of that with me, but... Um, I do pray a lot, even when I'm in the field, like, Lord, let me say the right thing. Please don't let me offend anyone. Let me get this story right. And also, please let me find a great character, someone who can really talk <laughs> and move this story along so I don't have to write a lot of track. I don't like writing a lot of track. You can even pray for the little things sometimes, like not writing a lot of track. Yeah, the little yeah. things make a big difference. <laughs> do you... um do you, when you look at the landscape, I know you were saying how, you know, you started by going to the Unity Conference and you've been going to conferences now for the last 15 years or so, and it's been such a, an invaluable resource for you. What are other things that you did when you were just starting out, both in journalism but then full-time as a broadcaster, that really helped propel you? and really helped allow you to figure out who you are and the voice that you want to represent? 
Well, the thing that comes to mind is something I did not want to do, but something my father told me to do. He said, invest in yourself. There was a workshop I wanted to go to. I thought it cost too much money. He said, instead of spending that money on hanging out with your friends or a trip, save the money and put it toward that workshop. Um, there was another time where <laughs> early in my career, we, me and some of the other journalists had to attend a, not a talent show, like a festival in the community. Some of the reporters had uh, their eight by 10 glossy portraits. I didn't have one because I was so new. And I was telling my dad, no one's going to know who I am if I don't hand out my photo. So my dad suggested I go take a picture and get them printed off at Walmart. I said, that's going to cost too much money. Again, what did he say? Invest in yourself. If you invest in yourself early on, I say this to any young journalist, the payoff will come later. Oh, I if love it, that story. If, if it means uh, taking a mentor out for dinner or lunch or coffee, do it. Uh, oftentimes your mentors, they'll probably pay for you, but, but the investment, I can't express how important it is to invest in yourself and to invest in people. Um, and when you do that, you'll see your return in the community, because if you're investing in the community, they're going to reach out to you uh, when something's happening. And I certainly don't think that has to stop even after you've been in the business for a while, there are certainly always things you can do to kind of invest in yourself, whether that's a new piece of equipment, whether that's learning a new skill. There are so many things that are available to us all as journalists. And yes, I, I think that's great, great advice and, and worth taking. And, and also worth knowing that you don't have to rely on your station to make an 8x10 photo of you. That is no. good knowledge to have. And that, you know, that seems a little vain in nature. But for example, I did buy my own camera. I just bought a new camera last week. And it's this camera I've been eyeing, I wanted, and I think it can make my stories look a lot better. So what did I do? I went out and I purchased it. Oof. So that means no Starbucks for a month. <laughs> How much Starbucks are you drinking? Oh, that's a that's a podcast for another day. <laughs> you know, we need caffeine to get through the days. Uh, well, yes, yes, I understand that. All right, well, that is going to wrap up my questions. But, Adrian, uh, I'm going to end with that famous reporter's question that I'm sure you've asked quite a bit. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? I would just say for anyone who is listening and maybe a young journalist or still in school, when you look at folks that you look up to, don't become discouraged because you see how great or how successful they are. Remember, they too were in the same position where you are now. It is a journey. You don't achieve success overnight. And the greatest successes do not sit in a trophy case. The success comes when you are in the community and you're telling stories and touching the hearts of people and changing lives through your words. Words carry weight and they have a lot of power, so choose them carefully. Beautiful, beautiful words from you, Adrian Broadus. Thank you so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you for having me. 
And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. And check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.